So there was a very little uh, trailer for the sermon, What's on Your Mind? Now I wonder what is on your mind tonight as you've come here. Maybe you have come eager to hear the Word of God and to share in fellowship with your Christian brothers and sisters. Maybe um, you're a bit agitated about tomorrow, what work might bring for you, or you can't wait for holiday, or you're excited about the YPF camp, or excited about what you're going to be doing but your mind might be a buzz of all sorts of different things. And it's very interesting, you know, where our minds go when we're not actively thinking. So when you're cleaning your teeth, what are you thinking about? Or shaving. You know, those of us who have to shave every morning, it's a bit of a laborious task. There's about 10 to 12 minutes where, you know, what are you thinking about? Or driving, if you have to drive to work. Where does your mind, what's its default position? What do you think about when you're lying in the bath? (laughs) Yeah, I think I missed that one. A bit of, bit of humour there. Um, and, and, you know, what do you think about when you first wake up in the morning? And in the passage that John read to us, we learn about what's on people's minds. Very clearly, we learn what's on our Lord's mind as he went up to Jerusalem. We learn again what's on the disciples' mind. We could paraphrase that as the same old rubbish as we've heard before. Unbelievable what they say, what's on their mind as they go up to Jerusalem. And we learn what's on Bartimaeus' mind, the blind beggar in Jericho that calls out to the Lord Jesus. So do have your Bible open if you've got one at the passage that we read. We'll be referring to it, of course. Now, the Lord Jesus has left Galilee... He won't go back there until after his resurrection. He's crossed the border into Judea, and although Jerusalem, you can't see it physically, he's going there, and the whole tempo and atmosphere is building. The momentum of the story is building. The tension is rising. What's coming up next is Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And then you've got the great events of the arrest and the trial and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so we are on the way to Jerusalem. And we're going to see what's on our Lord's mind, the disciples' mind. And, and when we see what's on the disciples' mind, I hope it's going to challenge us again as to what is on our mind. What are our attitudes? What are our ambitions? What are we thinking about? So first of all, let's look at verses 32 to 34, which John read. And you'll see there that the title in the NIV Bible that I've got anyway is Jesus Predicts His Death. Jesus Predicts His Death. Now, this Jesus, he is the eternal Son of God. He has always been. With the Father and with the Holy Spirit, he is everlasting God. And this is the Son of God who has been promised from the Garden of Eden, by every single prophet. And this is the one, this man going up to Jerusalem, that the whole of the Old Testament points to, that every drop of blood shed at every single sacrifice is pointing towards this Lord Jesus Christ. Every prophet speaks about him, every priest prefigures him, and every king is a kind of shadowy trailer for this Lord Jesus. Now, there's been 400 years of silence 
then the radical preaching of John the Baptist, which has raised expectancy to fever pitch, and of course the Lord himself has been conceived by God the Spirit in the womb of the young Virgin Mary. And the eternal Son of God, who has always been, has taken upon himself human nature, yet without sin. So he's been born amongst us as a baby. He was once two, he was once three, he was once six years old. He's grown up, young boy, through teenage years into adulthood. He's done his apprenticeship as a carpenter. He's worked in the carpenter's shop. He's been preaching since his baptism for three years. And now he is going up to Jerusalem where nothing awaits him but trouble, pain, agony, abuse, distress, and those terrible, terrible moments where he is actually cut off from his father as he hangs on the cross. Now Mark has emphasized from the very opening of his gospel that the one we are talking about is the Son of God. And there is nothing unforeseen about this. If you run your mind back through the Old Testament, right through to Genesis, beyond that into the eternal covenant of God, the cross, what Jesus is going up to has been decreed through all eternity. It's time, it's place, the manner of his death has been predicted by the prophets. For a thousand years, people have known that the Messiah will have his hands and feet pierced. For a thousand years, people have known that no bone will be broken, but that blood will be shed, and it all points to crucifixion, the cross. And there is an eternal decree, and hundreds and hundreds of years of preparation, and the Lord is going up to Jerusalem, is he not with a certain steadfastness, a purpose of pace, a real overwhelming sense that he is on a mission. I don't know if any of you have seen the recent film of Dunkirk. Uh, Colin's seen it. He's, he's got such a catalogue, Colin, as the films that he's seen. If you haven't seen it, it's worth seeing. But there's a very moving part. It basically charts uh, those on the land, a couple of soldiers on the land on the beach that have to be taken off, an RAF fighter pilot particularly, one and a small pleasure boat that goes out from a harbour in Dorset to pick up soldiers. And that pleasure boat is owned and captained by a Mr. Dawson. It's the Moonstone. And he travels across the channel to rescue stranded soldiers. He's an older man. They have to clear the boat of all of the stuff to get on 30, 40 life jackets. It's a wooden pleasure boat. It's going to make a journey like it's never made before right into the jaws of the enemy. And one young lad gets on. He, he, he jumps on at the end. He's a friend of the son of Mr. Dawson. He says, where are we going, Mr. Dawson? He says, we're going to war, George. And that boat sets its face to Dunkirk with all the weakness of this older man and these two young boys. And they pick up a survivor en route, and the survivor says, where are you going? And Mr. Dawson says, we're going to Dunkirk. And he says, you're mad. We need to go home. And he says, there will be no home to go to unless we do this. And that explains verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. And while others were followed, were afraid. 
Here is Jesus going right into the jaws of the enemy. Here is a man in all his apparent weakness. One man going to Jerusalem where his enemies will be baying for his death and will achieve his death. And why on earth would you do that? Of course, Jesus is going to the cross, eternally decreed, that is why he came, and he walks ahead of them with a steadfastness of purpose. With every stride of our Lord, there is a sense of destiny. And everything in the whole history of the universe is moving towards this event with this man making this journey to Jerusalem. Here is Jesus, one man, so weak. How can he effect the salvation of God's people? And the people around him are amazed and they're astonished and they're afraid and they can't get inside the mind of their master and their teacher and Jesus of Nazareth. Why would you go back into Jerusalem? If he doesn't go there, there'll be no home to go to. No heavenly home for you or for me. He's going to war. He's going to effect that final victory upon the cross. They are on the brink of something enormous. Twice all of them and three times some of them have been told in no uncertain terms what will happen when they get to Jerusalem. And so we read in verse 32, don't we, that they were afraid. Elsewhere, John chapter 11, when Jesus gets the call to come because Lazarus is ill. I think it's Thomas who says, come on, let's go, so that we may also die with him. And what does the Lord have on his mind? The cross. It's been on his mind as long as God has been God. It has been on his mind as the Spirit has worked in every single Old Testament author. It has been on his mind since childhood, growing up, into manhood, every piece of wood he touched and planed and cut and fabriced into an item of furniture with his father or whatever, what has been on Jesus' mind is the cross. Been on his mind all through his ministry and now supremely as he strides towards Jerusalem. Now the Lord in verse 33 gives us the clearest prediction yet of what is going to happen. Just listen to the detail of it. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be portrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. What a prediction about what is going to happen. Delivered to the chief priests exactly what happened. Handed over to the Gentiles because they had no power to execute him because they were governed by Rome. So there's nothing unseen there's nothing involuntary. The Lord is a victim, yes, but he's a willing victim. He volunteers himself to this path. He will be horribly slaughtered at Calvary. And although those who committed this worst of crimes are completely responsible for their actions, every detail will be exactly what was predicted and exactly what was planned what was on our Lord's mind? It was the cross. 
It was the suffering he would go through for our sin. It was the bearing of the anger of an infinite God. It was becoming a sacrifice. It was appeasing the wrath of God, of our Creator, of being a Redeemer and a Savior and a Ransom. That was what was on his mind. It's always been on his mind, but now with a greater intensity than ever. And that is what makes what follows so stark and incomprehensible, doesn't it? Verses 35 to 45 that we all read together. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So what was on the disciples' mind? We've seen what was on the Lord's mind. We've had a glimpse into the mind of the eternal Son of God. And what was on his mind was the cross. So James and John, we read elsewhere, inspired by their very ambitious mother, come to him and say, Teacher, do for us what we ask. Now they were a strange mixture, these guys. You've got to think about this. They had enough faith to believe that Jesus was going to a glorious destination and indeed a triumph. He was somehow going to establish his kingdom. They had enough faith to believe that Jesus could give them whatever they asked for. They're not reluctant, are they? They're not shrinking violets as they come to the Lord. But they had enough stubbornness and ignorance to think that the kingdom was still physical and involved getting shot of the Romans out of Palestine. And they still didn't realize that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world and the way that the kingdom he would establish would be the way of the cross. A strange mixture of great faith and great resistance to the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And that is how complicated often the psychology of a believer is. We may have real trust in the Lord but at the same time, real resistance to his word and his claim upon our lives. So what is actually burning in their hearts? What's at the forefront of their minds? It is, as we've seen before, self-interest. Faith, stubbornness, resistance, ignorance, self-interest, all bundles up in the minds of James and John. And they come to Jesus with their checkbook, and they say, Jesus, just sign here, please. Put your signature on it. Give us whatever we want. Now, if you go to the Lord with that kind of attitude and with that kind of spiritual shallowness, he will allow that spiritual shallowness to come to light. So he asks them to state their aims. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. Now, if you want to know the character of a man, the character of a woman, the character of a young person, or even a child, do not look at their achievements. Look at their aims. If you want to know your own character, go home tonight, get a piece of paper, and write down before God your aims in life. What do you want? What do you want God to do for you? That's going to reveal much more to me than my achievements. That's how you read a person. What are their aims? What are they living for? What do they most want? And Jesus is now going to expose to the open daylight the spiritual shallowness of these men. Just state exactly what you want out of life. Tell me what you want from me. Put it down. Tell me now, says Jesus. 
And they reveal that what is moving them at the moment is not loyalty to the Lord Jesus, not love for the cross, not concern for what was definitely going to be his suffering, not understanding of God's decrees, no understanding of their own scriptures, nothing about how Jesus predicted his future. What is uppermost in their minds is ambition. Not love and loyalty to the Master, but ambition. And what they're asking for, that when Jesus comes into his kingdom, when he sits on the throne, that Jesus will give them the two top jobs, Prime Minister, Lord Chancellor, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. One on the right hand, one on the left. They want to be seen as Christ's closest courtiers and advisors. Well, says Jesus, you don't know what you're asking for. And he comes back with that question, can you drink the cup I drink from and be baptized with the same baptism as me? Because the cup is the cup of his suffering and the baptism is the deluge of his agony. Are you too willing to go the way of the cross? Can you bear all the pain and shame that I am going to bear? You want to be with me when I sit on my throne, so will you go the way of suffering and rejection? Can you bear that? Verse 39, we can, they say. Now when a Christian believer thinks they can stand, then you know you've met someone who doesn't understand. When you meet self-confidence in a Christian, I don't mean confidence in God, but self-confidence, you've met poor faith and spiritual poverty. You see, the mark of a real Christian, a real servant, a real disciple of the Lord Jesus, someone who understands the ways of God and his or her own heart, is that we know how weak and sinful and poor and wretched and blind we are. Left to ourselves, we will never stand. Never be able to go through suffering. Can't even live today well, let alone tomorrow. After three years with the Lord Jesus and what they'd experienced, they're still spiritual pups. They've no idea how they should stand. You will suffer, James, says Jesus. And indeed he did because he was executed by Herod. He was put to the sword. You certainly will suffer, John. You'll be exiled on Patmos, cast out. Everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's no let out for that. You go the way of the cross if you follow me. But it's not up to me to give you the top position, says Jesus. The Father sent the Son. And although the Son is God in his own right, he's also the Son of Man. And subordinate to the Father he is, not junior. It's an amazing mystery, but it's not the Son of Man that gives out those top jobs. But God the Father, and they haven't begun to understand the intricacies of the Godhead. Those places are not mine to give, but yes, you will drink the cup, and you will suffer the baptism. Actually, it's interesting, who, on Jesus' right and left... At his glorious moment of triumph when he cried, it is finished. Who was on his right and left? Two criminals. The lowest of the low, we might say. But before we judge James and John too harshly, look at verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Not so with you. They didn't like the idea of James and John being over them. They'd rather be over James and John. They didn't like the idea of two men stealing a march on them and getting the top positions. If they'd thought of it first, they would have asked Jesus. They didn't want James and John asking for promotion because that's what they wanted. So they're all moved by the same self-interest. It wasn't just James and John, all the disciples. What was that on their mind was the same. Who is the greatest? Oh, how boringly repetitive this is. We've seen it before. They were still bickering about who was the greatest. And they did that when Jesus was talking about the cross before, and now when he's talking about the cross again, they're still bickering about who is the greatest. So then Jesus again draws them to himself and explains what true spiritual leadership is. And like a number of these sections in Mark, they're sermons in themselves, and we've only got time to just skate over them quickly. What Jesus is saying is that the very fact you can get people to do what you want and go where you want them to go is not spiritual leadership. The fact you can lead a crowd is not spiritual leadership. The very fact you can get people to follow you and do what you want is not spiritual leadership. Look at the way the Gentiles do things, but that's not the way you should go. And in verse 43, the Lord says this, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. When you become a Christian, everything changes. Everything, including what is great. So how do you define greatness? Greatness in the world, how much power you have over people, how much you can get them to do what you want, the amount of charisma, force of character. That's the way the world thinks. Interesting in the last election, how... Now, Jeremy Corbyn gained so much support by his force of character and persuasive argument, and people liked what they heard. And Theresa May was put very much on the back foot by that. And you saw the world jostling for greatness. And we've seen that down through the ages in the church. Not so with you, says Jesus. And James and John, and you lot, if you'd ever understood true spiritual leadership, you would not have asked for what you've just asked. Because spiritual leadership is, as Jesus says, putting others first. Ahead of all your personal priorities, spiritual leadership is all about serving others. It's making others holy and happy. It's leaving the world a better place because you have served in it and lived for other people's good and sought their welfare and not your own. Is about not being popular or even liked. It's about not being followed. It's here, as Jesus says, about doing good to others, serving others, looking after their interests, even if you're never noticed, never commended, never thanked, never paid, and forgotten. It's living for the good of your brothers and sisters, even if they don't understand what you are doing. There's a woman at work who had cancer when she was young. She's a Christian lady. She comes to our Christians at Work group. She's in her late 60s now, and she works on our reception. And she could never have children, and she has devoted her life to standing up for the unborn child and supporting women who are pregnant and who don't have an abortion. And every time she comes to our prayer group, she mentions what she's doing and how 
she's been on this particular silent vigil or she supported this young woman and that young woman. She has given her whole life to serving others. She herself could not have children of her own. And that is the ministry that God has called her into and I'm humbled by that every Thursday lunchtime. Interesting as well when you read Solomon's prayer. When Solomon became king of Israel, uh, the Lord said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Same, really, as we've got here. And Solomon said, and here is this great king, son of David, inheriting this, this incredible kingdom. I am but a little child. So give me wisdom and a discerning heart so that I might govern your people well with righteousness and justice. Because who can govern this great people of yours? And the Lord said, because you have asked for that, I will give that to you and wealth and riches and power over your enemies. And what Solomon asked pleased the Lord, we read. And Solomon said, I just want to be able to look after your people properly, Lord. I want to leave them in a better state than when I found them. I want to serve them. I want to rule over them in righteousness and justice. Spiritual leadership, Jesus says, is being like me. And then you've got that wonderful verse Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And there Jesus is still thinking about the cross. He gave his life for others. There was that great exchange, wasn't there, when Jesus died in our place. His life was given in punishment so that others would not be punished. He died a substitutionary death. He died the death others should have died, that they shouldn't die it. And that's us. He paid a debt which others paid, which others owed, that, that, that they could not pay. He gave himself for others. He who is God's appointed king, that is the example he gives us supremely on the cross. The greatest act of servanthood that you will ever, ever see gave his life a ransom for many. So we've seen what's on our Lord's mind. We've seen, sadly, what's on the disciples' mind, but it enables Jesus to give us that wonderful picture of what true spiritual leadership is, true servanthood. And now the scene changes very swiftly and dramatically. And we see now what is on the mind of this blind beggar. It was all happening as they were walking along. They come to Jericho. Here is a man with a great need. He's been born blind. And yet this man saw things that the chief priests and the scribes and even the disciples had never seen. Here is a great crowd. Here is this man sitting by the wayside. Can you get more helpless and hopeless than this? A blind beggar, crowds of people. He can't see. But this man becomes aware that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now he has never seen one of Jesus' miracles. He never saw Jesus feed 5,000 people or 5,000 plus because it says 5,000 men, and there are probably a lot more. He didn't see Jesus touch the coffin at Nain and, and that young man come back to life from death and be given back to his mother. He didn't see the paralyzed man get up and walk when he was lowered through the roof. He didn't see any of that. Everything he knows about Jesus, he knows secondhand, because he has heard about it. So he's just like us, isn't he? He hasn't seen it with his own eyes. He has no eyes with which he could see, and he certainly hasn't been following Jesus around, and all he does is spend all his life by the roadside at Jericho begging. But on the strength of what he has heard, 
He sees things which the religious leaders and the disciples who have seen all those things, he sees things they've never seen. He sees that Jesus is the son of David. Now they call him Jesus of Nazareth. Now Nazareth is not a place you really wanted to be hailed from. I mean, Richard of York is fine, or John of Cambridge. Andrew of Dorking is not much cop but Martin of Milton Keynes. If anybody's from Milton Keynes, I apologize now. But Jesus of Nazareth. You can almost hear the sneer in the voice. Last place on earth you'd expect Messiah to come from. But Bartimaeus says, Jesus, son of David. And the son of David is not just a title he uses because he's someone who's descended from David. The son of David is a title used for God's promised Messiah. Now here is a blind beggar who has never seen Jesus or anything that Jesus has done. But he knows that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David and God's promised Messiah. And Jesus, son of David, is passing him by and he can't see him, but that's no impediment or obstacle to his faith. He believed on the basis of what he heard and so should you and so should I. Look at his amazing persistence. Verse 47, when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They told him to shut up and sit down and be quiet. Many rebuked him. I hope it wasn't the disciples. They had this awful habit, didn't they, of trying to shut out the weak and the vulnerable. They told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. It's a tremendous prayer. Now, who in the Bible calls for mercy? Only sinners. And who do they call to? Only God. Only God. As a blind sinner, he calls out to God, who he knows to be Jesus, passing by, have mercy on me. Now, if you're not a Christian here tonight, take note of his persistence. If you've asked the Lord Jesus to be your saviour once or twice, and you're not sure whether you really mean it, you want to find out more about Christ, be persistent. Go to him and say, Lord, I really want to settle this matter. Will you please show yourself to me? Will you please have mercy on me? I know I've failed. I know I've messed up. I know I'm a sinner. But you receive sinners. You receive this man. Please receive me. Give him no rest, if I might say that reverently. He was persistent. And he kept on crying to the Lord Jesus. He won't be put off. He won't be shut up. He won't be discouraged. He's going to keep on crying and shouting until he gets an answer. Why is he so persistent? Because he sees his need. He sees his need of sight and he sees his need of salvation. He sees he's a sinner. His body and his heart, he's in need. And that need can only be met by Christ's power, the son of David. He sees the healer, he sees the saviour and he cries and he cries and he cries until he gets an answer. Why does a baby cry? Because it needs something. When I was 16 years old I fell down the cliff and ended up on a ledge and I have never bawled so much in all my life until somebody on the golf course heard me and called the Coast Guard. I was in need so I bellowed and I bellowed and I bellowed. And if you don't feel your need tonight, ask God to make you feel your need. That's the trouble with us in Surrey. We don't have needs in 2017. We've got some very good friends of ours 
and they're not believers. And to try to talk to them about Christ is like Teflon. And why? Because they've got a very nice house and good jobs. And they just don't see their need. At last, Jesus stands still and commands him to be called. Verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Now, how personal that is. Have you heard him calling you? The voice is calling you. And so he throws aside his cloak. Have you ever noticed that? The one thing he owned in the world that probably kept him warm at night was his cloak. And he threw it aside and ran towards Jesus. He would have never found that cloak again. He would never have found it. And it probably would have been nicked anyway. Now that is the level of faith of this blind beggar who has never seen Jesus and never seen anything that he has done. And so Jesus says to him in verse 51 exactly what Jesus said to James and John, what do you want me to do for you? And he comes with that wonderful title, Rabboni. Now that's more than rabbi. Rabbi, great one. Rabboni, my great one. My personal Great one, my God, I want to see. And he receives it. And verse 52, what is his reaction? He follows Jesus along the road. No more sitting helplessly begging. He was up, off, and following Jesus. He couldn't bear the thought of leaving Christ. He called out to him, and an almighty power had given him sight and a new heart. His great desire was to be with Christ and follow him down the road. That's what the gospel does for people. It transforms them and sets them in a completely new direction. They follow Jesus on the road, on the road at school, on the road at university, on the road at work, on the road of family life, on the road of personal finance, on the road of use of time. They follow Jesus on the road of ambitions and priorities. That's what the gospel does when it opens our eyes. So, as we finish, what different minds we see on that day. If the mind of the Lord of glory was so engrossed with the cross, then the mind of his people should be engrossed with the cross. It should always be the great center ground of our preaching, our church life, and all Christian thought. This fits in so well with what Sam said this morning, that we never move on from the cross. In fact, you've got to constantly go back to the cross time and time again. If the mind of the disciples was on selfish ambition and Jesus rebukes it and shows it for what it is, that shows us where our mind should never be. When I went to Sunday school, we had the acronym J-O-Y, JOY. If you want joy, it's Jesus, others, you. Now that might seem simplistic, but you won't go far wrong and you will have joy if you stick to it. If the mind of Bartimaeus is on his need and upon the son of David, who he knows can meet that need to the extent he'll leave his cloak behind, and upon mercy and kindness, if you don't know him tonight, I implore you, that's where your mind should be, focused on the one who will hear you 
He's calling you, they said, as Bartimaeus was finally heard and came forward. So, as we come to the Lord's table in a minute, I ask you the question, what is on your mind?